Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is Paul Alexandru, who is founder and CEO of Modern Equivalent. He specializes in helping teams and leaders to adapt and win in the world's most restless era. So, Paul, give the audience a quick rundown in terms of your background and how you got to where you are. As you said, most of the work that I do is with sort of founders, boards, venture partners, and most of the work that I do tends to be helping them um, adapt to moments of deep change. So whether they be strategic transformations, pivots, outrageous growth, whatever it is, any of those moments of, of discomfort. And most of the work that I do tends to be based on my own experiences and work with, with high growth companies and founders. And then actually, a lot of that is based on the work I've done with Kahoot, which some of you listen right. to. Okay, so t- tell me a little bit about that uh, backstory with Kahoot then. I know um, a couple of the founders, Johan and Jamie, and we've known each other when from way back in London. My background previous to Kahoot was essentially building and running creative technology and media businesses. Um, and I did a lot of work with those businesses pre or post M&A, so typically around moments of change. And I'd also probably for about the last 15 or 20 years been doing quite a bit with the startup community anyway. And I was talking about storytelling for startups. And one of my observations uh, was that as early stage companies try and find product market fit, they tend to be feature obsessed, really at the expense of everything else. And the problem with being feature obsessed is when you actually find fit and your key objective is to scale aggressively, if all you have is features and functionalities, it's very easy to scale yourself into a commoditized place. So I would talk about, yeah, I'd talk about the need to build your MVB, your minimal viable brand alongside that so that you had some information and a lens for the business that was not purely product dependent. And that led me to do more work with Kahoot. So talk to me about this minimum viable brand, because that sounds like uh, an interesting concept, which certainly I'd never heard of before. One of the things that I, I tend to say anyone who listen is that um, I think story and brand is misplaced in marketing departments. And I think that... that is, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's sort of no better demonstrated than in an early stage company where the founders are so close to the narrative and the narrative informs decisions. You know, it becomes a lens for making strategic decisions at a product level in terms of the funding that they bring on board people that they bring on board, how they build culture. And so a lot of the work that I do now is actually helping reposition brand and story as a strategic tool for mm-hmm. founders and C-suite so that it's actually baked in. They use it as a lens, especially around moments of change, where you know it's very easy for misalignment to occur. And uh, So let's start with the four most common questions that founders, CEOs, investors ask you around building the brand, building the story? One of them is, um, which I love, is we've got a story. You know, how, how is this any different? But, you know, typically the story equates to a history. So it's, you know, me and Frank started this business in the garage of, in the suburbs. Look, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just not the most powerful version of right. So I think often... You know, the word brand, the word story, it's been kicking around for so long. Often we tend to 
apply our own biases and our own understanding of what we think it means. Can you um, define them? Define them in terms of what you are uh, your your version of brand and story. Well, my my version is that CEOs are the new storytellers, and that actually your story is one of the most critical strategic levers for a business. Your story needs to be informing your product and service design, your culture, your capabilities, as well as your communications. I think at its worst, most people see it as a marketing artifact. Right. Okay. I'll come back to that in a second. So in effect, your story is the future you're going to create and the direction, the velocity, the momentum towards that. Yes, that's right. It, it, it's a shorthand for why you matter in the world. Right. Okay. So it's the, it's the narrative around why you exist, for whom, why they care. From that, I'm extrapolating that the story actually is more about your customer than you. That's right. Well, it's, it's, um, I think your, your story is the bridge that connects who you fundamentally are as a business yep. or as a leadership team and what matters most to the people that you serve. I think that this is where you start to see some of the tension points with kind of bad brands, bad storytelling is when they tend to be myopic or self-serving or the opposite is true where they tend to be entirely directed at satisfying a customer need independent of what you want or who you are as a business. Right. Well, I can see why that tension may be a problem as well. What did you mean by a marketing artifact? A marketing artifact, but just a marketing output. You know, a story right. is something the marketing departments come up with and it probably changes every year. And, uh, so it's you know, a tick in the box. That's a tick in the box. It's a, right. it's a campaign. It's a tagline. And I think, again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with those applications. But I think unless you are using your story to inform how you grow, you're really not, you're not sweating it for what it's worth. Understood. And you, you mentioned also that a lot of products and companies are feature-led. I agree with you, and I abhor it. But from your perspective, why is it the kiss of death? Well, I mean, you take what's happening at the moment with you know, this sort of little moment in the world. There are companies that I think are winning. They are capitalizing on this moment and leaning into it. And then there are the companies that are struggling to evolve. The companies that are winning are the ones that are pivoting not around their features, but they're pivoting around their purpose or they're pivoting around their brand. And in fact, often they're pivoting away from their old feature sets. So you're seeing this in a lot of analog businesses. You're seeing sort of fashion businesses that are redeploying their supply chains into PPE wear or a lot of gin distilleries who are redeploying their distilleries and their supply chain into hand sanitizers. I mean, they're the most basic examples, but you're seeing, I'm, well, I'm sure you're, you are as well, but I'm seeing a lot of service innovation happening right now, but they're the, they're the companies and the leaders that are using their story or their brand as the way to pivot into a new product or a new feature. That makes sense. Okay, so mm-hmm. what are the other common questions that you hear from founders and uh, investors? Will marketing own this? You know, I've got a great CMO. I'll introduce you. <laughs> so my response is, look, if, if you, you want to abdicate one of your most important strategic assets, I'm not sure that this is the right relationship. <laughs> look, you must see it as well, Marcus. As I said earlier, I really believe that today, CEOs, founders are the storytellers, and they need to embrace that responsibility. They need to author and co-author 
who they are with their teams, of course, so that it is a lot more collaborative. You get the buy-in, but they need to be at the centre of it and they need to own it. I see this a lot in my world. So I've got a few examples that spring to mind where a CEO asked me to coach their CRO or their sales director, uh, their commercial director, and they don't want to involve themselves on a regular basis in the process when they forget that what they say and do dramatically impacts their people. And if they don't change themselves, then they will find a way to undermine all the work that we do. And so I'm going through this process at the moment with one of my prospects, and she absolutely doesn't want to get involved. And her sales director is very good, but there's resistance because they they don't want to make that investment of time. They don't Mm -hmm. think they need it. But it is an abdication of responsibility. And Mm -hmm. given that sales is fundamental, it's the lifeblood of their business, and they're operating in a tough, crowded, competitive, price-sensitive market where Mm -hmm. they get dragged into procurement, if this person doesn't feel confident uh, in themselves and they can't hire, fire, train, onboard, develop the way they want, they need to, and the CEO then undermines it and says, well, why are you doing that? Or uh, this is crazy. Then it all unpicks. I get that. Okay, other common questions that you hear. How quickly can we wrap this? <laughs> you know, if I, There's a tool in particular that I've developed based on a lot of what we learned at Kahoot, and it's called a brand OS or a brand's operating system. And it's essentially a way where, where I can work with founders or leadership teams to help them reset, re-architect their brand. Then the second phase is helping them connect that with the internal culture at a product level to make sure that it actually informs behavior, not just language. Then track it and then evolve it over time. And I think that that's one of the common mistakes is people see tools like brand and story. They see them as these sort of things that that you do once, you sort of set and forget. I'll do it once and then that's it. Let's move on and we'll do something else. And actually the truth is, just like product development today, it's a lot more iterative than it ever was. You know, if you look at sort of brand guidelines of yesteryear, they were three, 400-page documents that documented every little aspect of a visual identity. Uh, now what you're seeing is sort of pattern libraries getting created in their place, which is a much looser way of managing and evolving brands. So effectively what you're describing there is an operating rhythm for their brand and their story. Yes. That's right. Very interesting, because we teach that as well with our scale-up clients, that you need a sales operating rhythm. And Mm -hmm. that comes from the leadership Mm -hmm. and needs to filter down through the organization. So managers have an operating rhythm in terms of coaching and training, accountability. Salespeople need an operating rhythm in terms of how they balance their workload, uh, where they focus their time on keep, attain, recapture, expand accounts and how much time is dedicated to prospecting versus growing business. Okay, really interesting. What are the three most common questions that people don't ask you, but they absolutely should? Look, probably the most fundamental question that people should ask, and I think this is true of us as humans and leaders, is who am I? You know, so many businesses want a story without answering, I think, what is the most fundamental question. 
you know, and I think that that is sort of brand at its worst, where it, you know, it's um, turn them out to commercial fiction. I think where you get leadership team or a founding team that is deeply attuned to why they are doing what they're doing, the story tends to self-animate, as does the culture, as does the product. That's, I think, probably one of the most fundamental questions that if it's not, if it's not already been addressed and someone gets in touch, that is certainly one of the most, uh, one of the first questions that we'll hit on. That's really interesting because that's the first thing that we do as well. Is um, it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you don't know who you are, <laughs> if you don't know who you are and what matters to you, what your values are, what your plan is, if you don't understand why you want the business to deliver what you're looking for, then the challenge is it's really difficult to actually make the business deliver what you want. If you don't understand who you are, if you don't understand where you, you're hoping the business will go in order to help you. I mean, you must see it as well, Marcus. I think a lot of what, from what I understand you talk about and I talk about as well, they are, yes, they are commercial truths. They're true of how business should operate today. But I think a lot of them are, are true of the human truths as well. You know, they sort of apply to our personal life as much as our corporate life. Well, you can't separate Paul Alexandru, the human being, from Paul Alexandru, the brand builder, the storyteller, the founder, the husband. It's intrinsic. You are the one constant in all of your dissatisfying relationships. And if you're not central to that and you don't really understand your role in it, then it's very easy to find how uh, to become confused and confuse others. So I'd like to then extrapolate that a little bit. If the founders don't really understand who they are, what kind of confusion does this lead to? It's chaos. You find in some founding teams that everyone sort of adopts a different role, not just practically or functionally, but I think energetically as well. Just so long as there is a, a strong understanding amongst the leadership team about how we operate as an ensemble, I think the business is on rails. Where there is misalignment, uh, where, say, you know, the business experiences a degree of success, the business takes on some money that is a little bit divisive, and it starts to interfere with the energy of the team or the team's understanding of how it operates. I think that that is a dangerous, dangerous territory for them to be in because then it just sort of filters down. If you don't have alignment and understanding at a founder level or a board level, it's evident in the way that the ship operates. What we see is if there isn't clarity at the top, ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. And yes. it's okay when it's two or three of you, then it's just a spat. But as you start to scale and each department then starts to do their own thing, and they may be doing it very well independently of all of the others, but if you're working across purposes and you're pulling against each other, then it creates a culture of blame, excuses. You're competing with yourself. Now, I'm a huge fan of you know, tear your own house down and rebuild it on a regular basis. But if you're working across purposes, then that's catastrophic. And it yes. sends a terrible message to the staff. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, and the opposite is true as well. 
where there is deep alignment or a deep understanding of identity with any, any organization, you see that it outperforms its contemporaries. You know, you see that. Well, talk to me about how that worked in Kahoot, because that, that's obviously a great story. You know, you, you took that from nothing to massive in the blink of an eye. I suspect there were many ups as well as downs along the way. So I'd be curious to learn about the mistakes and the hard-won scar tissue lessons you learned along the way. Well, look, I wasn't one of the founding teams. I was an early early investor, an early member of the team. But um, the founders, I mean, I'm, I'm very close. I still do a lot of work with Johan and Jamie, who was the chief creative officer and CEO. I jumped on board when I think the business was at about one, one and a half million monthly actives. I think now it's sitting at about 150 odd million monthly actives or 100 odd million. So I can't take the early credit for the success. I will say that the way that they, the culture that they created for that business and the intent that they established from the earliest days was pretty remarkable. And knew when you were in there, that it was not, the ambition was not to create just another learning brand. None of the founders have backgrounds in education and they always saw that as possibly one of their greatest strengths because, you know, certainly in the early days, Kahoot is a game-based learning brand. It, 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 its primary popularity was in schools. I mean, now it's sort of tipped into the corporate world and a lot of actually the majority of Fortune 500s are now using it. But there was always a very strong sense of identity. And I think that that was established from Johan and Jamie and the the other founders. The objective was never to innovate curriculum within schools. It was always to shift the ergonomics and the emotion of a classroom. Everyone knew that. That's why the, the, the purpose remains unchanged. It's to make learning awesome. And it's sort of deliberately clunky as a stated ambition. Because you know, awesomeness is a feeling. It's it's not better grades. It's not a, a you know sort of a metric that you can measure against. And but everyone was very aligned around that. I mean, you'd speak to anyone in the business, and they were all able to repeat that. They were all on board with that. That was one of the reasons they joined, was because the business was optimizing around an emotion, not a sales target at that point, or not a growth number. That's really interesting. So they're optimizing around an emotion, not a sales target. Yes. Okay. So again, if we look at the mission that everybody in the business had then, if you ask them what their job was, how would they typically respond or how do they respond? Well, I mean, people do. Look, I could, I could sort of, you know, there's that great story about NASA and the janitor saying, I'm putting someone on the moon. But uh, it wasn't quite like that. But I think everyone was certainly able to identify with the higher order purpose of the business. And that actually everyone knew that we were optimizing around the emotion of the classroom. Our ambition was to engage hearts because without hearts, your mind will never fully engage. You know, I remember in one of our earliest chats, Actually, the first time Kahoot was ever used, one of the most enthusiastic kids in the classroom turned out to be one of the most disruptive kids in the classroom. And it became a design ambition to turn the disengaged kid at the back of the class 
to want to see them have their name at the front of the class for all of the right reasons. So it was never it was never around shifting curriculum or shifting grades or and that I think is really the secret how and why Kahoot has been able to transfer so beautifully into your Googles and your Facebooks and your corporates. It's really interesting. I had a conversation with Tora Bistron, who is the sales director for Selami, mm-hmm. which is a an experiential learning business. And mm-hmm. their founder was a teacher who got frustrated with disengagement in the classroom. In fact, he ended up changing the entire Swedish education system so that their classrooms are full of experiential learning, not lecture. Mm-hmm. And individuals work together to come up with the solution themselves through practical exercises. Tell me this, I mean, what sort of scale did Kahoot achieve? Well, I mean, it's now um, publicly listed. I mean, we took money from um, Microsoft and uh, Disney um, bought in. We had the backing of some believers, some out of Europe. Most of the funding for the business came out of Europe, I believe. The secret source for Kahoot was always its rampant user growth. It really, the monetization strategy was meant to kick in much later than it actually did. The more money that you take on board, the more that money wants to see, these days anyway, viability and sustainability of business, which I think is a good thing. But really, it's been in the last few years that the business has moved aggressively into the corporate space, and it's done that incredibly successfully. I mean, especially through this whole um, sort of the global pandemic, where a lot of businesses were looking for innovative platforms, not just to communicate or to connect people, but to build connection. And Kahoot is a fantastic way to do that because it creates a single moment that everyone is able to participate in at the same time. Whereas I think what you're finding with Zoom and a lot of video-based platforms, they're still relatively linear engagements. You know, you can't have everyone talking at the same time, for example. You can't really have everyone communicating collectively, coherently. It tends to be you talk and then I talk or, you know, someone else has to talk. Whereas I think what what is really sort of solidified Kahoot through this moment is that it allows everyone to play at the same time and engage in the same social moment at the same time. It's, It's been really fascinating to watch, actually. So as an observer of the human condition, what have, you start, what have you noticed during this lockdown where people need that, those collective moments? I think, uh, you know, something you said earlier, I think before we started rolling, was that the pandemic hasn't necessarily broken institutions. It's highlighted fracture points. It's highlighted, it's highlighted breaks. And I think the same is true of of society. I think that there are, you know, I look at even the video platforms that we're using now and, um, you know, and you, you only understand their real shortcomings from having to live on them a number of hours each day. And I feel like the need for human connection, this moment has really sort of amplified that. You're seeing it with heightened lens on community in the hospitality industry now, a lot of restaurateurs that have managed to keep their doors open are really desperate to support their staff. Whatever they have to do, whatever they have to sell, they're really desperate to support their supply chain 
because it's taken them years to find those producers. Consumers are really conscious of buying locally. So I feel like there is this spotlight on community and I feel like it's a very physical community driven by human relationships, not just by sort of social interactions. What have you found? I'm certainly finding that exposing weaknesses side, I think what I've seen is the managers who were great coaches before, they and their teams continue to thrive. The managers who said, I'm too busy to coach because they weren't coaching are really struggling. And Mm -hmm. and you've seen huge layoffs. My take on this is a bit more radical than many. I think what the smart money will do Mm -hmm. is they will take a blank sheet of paper and they will use this opportunity to plan as if they were building their business from scratch. If you 80-20, the top 20% and the bottom 20% of your partner channel, your sales force, your operation. In fact, there's a very elegant law called Price's Law. And it states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization, which essentially is basically 80-20-ing the top 20 and the bottom 20. Now, Mm. if you have 10 people, that means three produce 50%. If you have 100, 10 produce 50%. If you have 10,000, 100 produce 50%. Mm. Now, my take on this is that the braver ones will use this as an opportunity to radically ask themselves better questions. And the questions would be, well, what if we didn't go back to where we were? What if we took the best of the best and we redeployed the money that we're spending or have been spending on the bottom 50%, which constitutes factors, you know, we're talking about two to 4% in the top echelon mm-hmm. and 96 to 98% of the spend on salary, for example market Mm -hmm. lead generation. And if we put all of those leads and that pipeline into the hands of the top 50% producers, and then we provided them with good sales support, marketing support, the best tools in the market, and then we invested the rest of that money in recruiting salespeople, managers, partners like that top 50% 50 producers, then we would be, we'd get to keep more money. We would be more profitable, which means that we would have more latitude to invest and would come out of this stronger, leaner, fitter. Now, you've got the perfect cover to do this without feeling guilty because chances are you furloughed a lot of those people. You're not under any obligation to take them back if you don't need to or if you can't. And frankly, what passes for average in sales and even worse in management and worse still in the channel is awful. It's Mm. not that they're bad people, but they've been badly trained. They've got the wrong kind of belief systems. And you need to be fair, but you also need to be pragmatic. Mm. And if you're going to make it out of this in any fit form, then you need to take a radical knife to the cancer, which is effectively massive inefficiency and being stuck in traditional management behaviors that don't serve you. I don't know how you feel about that, but I I suspect I'm not going to be very popular in the sales community. (laughs) Look, no, I think you're absolutely right. It was true before the pandemic. 
that you know nothing inspires innovation like an existential crisis. I would implore partners of mine to sort of seek out your existential crisis because I think one of the challenges or threats to most leadership teams is the problems that they're seeking to solve aren't big enough. And I think what we have here is this forced existential crisis where the whole world is feeling it at the same time and the whole world is having to innovate or reimagine their realities at the same time. And I think the one truth of the whole the whole moment is that, that, that we will never go back to how things were. Yeah. A business that has learned to be more efficient, leaner, probably more profitable, won't want to go back and build up its risk profile, be less efficient again. I mean, it's just not going to happen. I was Sorry. speaking to Jay McBain from Forrester, and he mm-hmm. said that this crisis has moved the digitization process forward 10 years. And I I agree. I mean, I cannot imagine going back to the way things were, even though I've been practicing self-isolation for the last 17 years anyway, uh, because of having a grumpy personality. But the reality is that there is no need to hop on a plane. You've got the tools and resources that allow you to be hyper-efficient and create a lot of engagement. Yes, you might want to do that once or twice, but to go prospecting, for me to hop on a plane and go into uh, Asia or Africa or the US seems mm. crazy. For a first meeting, why, why would I do that? Why would they want me to do that? It mm. just incurs more cost, which I then have to pass on to them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that you know, what happened was you're um, sort of a, a Darwinist. Evolution tends to be relatively iterative, and then there are these evolutionary leaps. And I think this is one of those evolutionary leaps where we're sort of jettisoning, jettisoning some of the past. We're sort of cutting off our tails because we don't no longer need it anymore. You know, you don't longer need to get on the plane, even though there was always a sense, even though you, I mean, what we're doing now, you could zoom in and you could Skype in whatever your chosen platform. There was still that legacy belief that you had to get your ass on that plane to meet them face-to-face for the first time. And, you know, I'm now based in Sydney. I spent a decade in London. I work on pretty much most continents, and I'll do that primarily from here, or I'll relocate if the project is big enough. But, you know, the reality of remote is really now just reality. You know, (laughs) it's not like remote is a foreign concept anymore. Okay, let's move on a little bit then, because I think that's fascinating. What I'm really curious about is your journey in Kahoot now in yes. terms of your best mistakes? What were the mistakes that taught you the most valuable lessons? I don't know if it was a mistake because I think what the ambition was always to sort of deliberately sort of sidestep the way that I'd certainly learned how to build brands. But I think, I think one of the lessons I learned, one of the best lessons I learned, and it's really informed my, my thinking around identity and story and leadership, it was working with, with Jamie Brooker, who was one of the founders. And we worked, when we were sort of resetting the narrative for the business, we really worked hand in glove to understand what that meant at a product level. It was less of a mistake, but it was more of a, you know, a moment of enlightenment where I realized actually the role of brand, the role of story 
it was so undercapitalized in most organizations because it just this just wasn't happening it wasn't getting wasn't getting developed at that level at a product level it wasn't being used to inform decisions it was typically just being used to communicate product realities and in my mind that's just too late in terms of how you translate that into your marketing message into your sales message into what your customers are saying about you? Because I I suspect that's another really interesting element of story. How do you make sure that the story gets translated and it's then being used? It becomes a natural part of discourse whenever uh, you're speaking to the customers or customers are speaking about their experience. Yeah, that's a great question. Most strategy fails because the leadership team fails to operationalize it. And I think brand as a tool needs to get operationalized. And what do you mean by that? By that, I mean um, the, the business needs to understand what the tools are, what that brand anatomy is, what the story is. They need to understand what the, the values are. And then they need to be held accountable. So they need to be someone in the business. Typically, in most of the work I do, it's the founder or it's a senior leadership team or or the C-suite. And they hold the business accountable to um, bringing the story to life. So in product reviews, at the end of the meeting, they simply ask, just tell me, how how is this reflecting our, our values? How is this reflecting our brand? How is this answering a a customer need or desire? I mean, they're basic questions that often don't get asked because the business is so sort of feature-focused or product-focused that often these elements, they're not there as a lens. So it's as as rudimentary as that. I remember going to do a training, my first training session with a very large, it was was an $8 billion engineering company, and they produced kit for oil drilling. So oil heads, well heads and flow meters, and this lovely guy called Tom from Texas came over. And it was the most deathly death by PowerPoint I've ever seen. It was 90 minutes of him putting up pictures of flow meters. And it was all the technical spec, you know, the, the flow rates and the amperes and all of this kind of stuff. And not one salesperson asked the question, Tom, that's fine and dandy, but how do we use that to sell it? I just had this horrific picture of and going out and speaking to their customers and actually talking about the technical specifications. That's fine, but unless you understand why they need it and how they're going to use it and why it matters, then you can't create any emotion. And all you do is you turn yourself into a commodity. Now, this is not stuff that you can just go down to B&Q and buy. This is stuff that's incredibly specialist. And it just struck me as crazy. And there are thousands of these things. You know, you see marketing data sheets. I mean, who on God's earth ever came up with a fucking idea that that was a good idea, that you're going to put together a bunch of features about a product? If you look at your own behavior, when was the last time you read one of those and said, you know, bugger me, what I really want is one of them? Yeah. <laughs> it just Absolutely. doesn't happen. Absolutely. I think um, this is where the piece of work that I tend to focus on it is part of a wider strategic transformation. It has to be. It has to be embedded. And the way to embed it is you set up task forces across the business 
and you say to people, here is who we are. And we've recut our brand, we've recut our narrative, we've recut our values, whatever, whatever the, the, the tools are. We're going to do a session where we want you to figure out how does this change what you do? How can it start to inform or enhance the work that you do? How can we hold ourselves accountable based on who we are? I mean, it's a process that the business needs to go through. And I think historically, when people are, have used the word brand or have used the word story, it's something that's been owned by marketing. It's something that's primarily been used to drive acquisition. It's not really been used at an operational level. And I think that that's the fundamental shift. This is really interesting because this ties to another conversation I had recently with mm-hmm. Professor Eddie Obeng, who is the founder of Pentacle Virtual Business School. And he made the point, 80% of change programs fail. And one of the principal reasons is it's a bit like photography. In photography, there are three things that you can control. You can control the shutter speed, the aperture, and the ISO, the film speed. And if you change one without modifying the others, then the color will look either washed out or too dark, and uh, you won't get a a, a well-balanced image. And people forget that if you change one thing in your organization without looking at the ripple effect of who else and how else it affects other parts, then it's unlikely to deliver the intended outcome. In fact, what it's probably going to do is deliver a number of unintended outcomes, which will then create people digging their heels in and resistance. And so this is really important that you get you, you look at the broader implications of your story. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're developing product, then making sure that you recognize that if you change one aspect of it, then it has a knock-on effect. I think that's a really important point. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, I think, Marcus, is historically brand and story have been sort of immutable. They've been created, assets have been produced, and they've been put out in the world or stuck on a wall. And I think today, a story is something that needs to get used. People need to get it in their hands. They need to figure it out for themselves, not just in terms of language, but they need to have the space to think about what, what if I'm a back-end developer, what does this actually mean for the work that I do? And I think that that is the one failing of most traditional businesses is that they don't connect those dots. And a lot of the equity that they create when they go down this process of resetting their story or resetting their brand, it whittles away very, very quickly. And the true potential of that investment is never realized through the business. Mike Adams is someone who plays strongly in my space around story. Mm -hmm. He has seven different types of story specifically to help the business move itself forward and to communicate internally, externally to customers, to the wider marketplace, to their partners, investors. And it's really interesting because if you don't understand that the CEO's job is being chief storyteller and in the day-to-day, again, another thing that I'm seeing a lot of, the best CEOs, the best leaders are great storytellers and they spend a lot of time coaching their direct reports, conveying those stories, making sure that those stories are then disseminating through the organization. And that then creates unity, it creates consistency and commonality of purpose, commonality of message. So 
tell me this, in the scale-ups that you've worked in, you must have come up against situations where you had some pretty good knockdown fights, where there was disagreement. How do you encourage that for constructive conflict in order to build a better story? Well, I think tension is a really precious asset when it's positive tension. And I think it, it goes back to the culture of the room where there is respect. You can violently disagree with someone without the violence. And that's actually a, a very healthy dynamic. You know, one of the things that Hitchcock used to say was the bigger the villain, the better the film. And I think <laughs> we, we tend to shy away from villains. We like to focus on the happy elements, the hero and whatnot. But actually, the villain is, is at always the counterpoint. And a contrary point of view often holds a path to much higher enlightenment because they force us, they force us to rise or to be our best self, whether that's someone in the room or whether it's you know, the villain that's identified by a brand or by an organisation that they're fighting. I think oppositional forces are incredible motivators for progress. So I think just so long as the intent of the tension is positive, I think they should be encouraged at all levels. I heard a lovely story. Back in the 1970s, there was a company that realised that they could get much higher prices for their fish if they shipped them over to East Coast, uh, partially East Coast restaurants in the States. So they converted a bunch of jets into flying aquaria and they caught fish, kept them live, and then put them into these aquaria. But when they arrived the other end, they weren't so fresh. A lot of them were floating on the top of the tank. And <laughs> they consulted a marine biologist and said, put a shark in the tank. Nothing so big as to kill them, but just enough to create some tension. And the tension keeps them alive. I think that's really important. I also think that it's very important that when you're telling your story, that there is a meaningful purpose and a relevant point behind it. I've seen many stories that seem to go off. They're dull anecdotes rather than meaningful stories. And a lot of the stories that I've found have been most effective in my world have been that hero's journey. We mm. find a protagonist who has a problem and they yeah. hit a low point and then they come across the guide, moi. And mm. then you know, we go through some ups and downs and it's turbulent and it's difficult and there's peril. And then they come out of it stronger, better, faster, leaner. Um, yes. And all the stories, we, we, we forget for the last quarter of a million years, our ancestors have been sat around campfires telling those stories. We're creatures of story. And it seems to be daft that we forget that these so-called softer skills are, pack way more punch than a balance sheet. Again, how do you convey that to founders, to investors, so that they genuinely see the value of it? I mean, is it just through story that you do that? Or you know, how do you appeal to their heartstrings? Well, I mean, the truth is you probably appeal to their wallets, you appeal to their egos, you appeal to whatever their particular triggers are. And I think whenever I talk about the role of story, it's never for marketing reasons alone. In fact, with Kahoot, my, my aspiration was to never, to never have a marketing department. You know, I was a chief brand officer and I think that what we think is marketing today is actually sort of growth and actually brand 
has separated from marketing and brand is now a layer that works across the whole business. You know, when I speak to founders, it's primarily around story as a driver of growth, especially with, if you're dealing with a, a high growth business and it doesn't matter on what sort of scale, end of that high growth, you know, early or, or late stage, two things that are happening. They are capitalizing along the way and they are trying to hang on to their wheels. So alignment is a massive challenge for them. It's a massive friction point. They're, you know, one company I worked with, they, um, they hired, they went from five people to 60 people in the space of two months. I mean, trying to metabolize that culture is an incredible strain on founders who are trying to develop a product at the same time. So positioning story as a way to align and inform decisions and liberate accountability as a business scales rapidly that is incredibly attractive as a tool for growth for a founder. The other thing is you're dealing with these companies that are in this sort of parallel state of being and becoming. They have high potential, but they may not have the users, the data points, the revenue to justify the valuations that they're seeking. So the quality the multiplier is often directly related to the quality of the story that the founders are able to tell. Very interesting. I mean, a really good example of this was Splunk. Tom mm. Shodorf, who architected and led their meteoric growth from 45 million to 1.2 billion in five years, which is breathtaking. Wow, that is crazy. And every person in the organization had to be able to tell the story. Mm. And there needed to be consistency and clarity. And I think if you take it into the recruitment process, I think it's really important in the recruitment and hiring process, uh, but also in the onboarding stage to make sure that part of the onboarding process is that the new recruit understands and can tell that story with conviction and understand what it means, not only to the business, but to their customers, to all of the people they work with, their suppliers, their channel, their partners. And it's really fundamental to that. Tell me this, what are you being influenced by at the moment? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you highly recommend to others? I tend to look for lessons everywhere. I mean, in terms of the tech space, I, I mean, it's Professor Galloway, Scott Galloway, I don't know if you've read No Mercy, No Malice, but it's, it's a staple on my reading list. It's fantastic. I, I've been pulling out some old uh, Dr. John DiMartini, who's a metaphysician. He, he does a fantastic job of connecting sort of universal laws and universal human truths with sort of contemporary high-performance culture, so in organisations. So I've listened to a bit of him. I've watched an incredible series recently called The Messiah. I don't know what, if you've seen it, but it's... Yeah, I have. It was really good. Really wonderful. And it really a fantastic reminder about the power of belief as well. You know, I think that we, we inherently want to believe. You know, we want to believe that transformation is possible in others because therefore it means it's possible in ourselves. And uh, I thought it was a fantastic series. It really reminded me of a lot of businesses that I've, I've looked under the bonnet of, actually, <laughs> of these sort of messiah figures. There are sort of three that bring to mind. Yeah. What about you? Have you um, come across anything? Definitely. I, I would highly recommend David Epstein's range. 
And that's how generalists in highly specialized fields that require creativity tend to thrive and produce better outcomes than specialists. Um, mm. Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed, and that talks about how critical it is to have diverse teams because they see the whole picture rather than the a limited uh, view of the world. So an example yes. he quotes in there is if you give an American audience uh, a video of a fish tank, they'll comment on the fish. If you give a Japanese audience the same video, they will comment on the aesthetics of the tank, uh, the gravel, the bubbles, the sea. Mm. And if you don't have both of them, then you miss half the picture. The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham is an absolute must. If you are trying to build an effective business, uh, and he asks the kind of shitty, horrible, ghastly questions I love to ask. At the end of every chapter, you should be sweating blood. Um, it's a lovely book. And um, Principle by Ray Dalio is magnificent. So those four, actually another one, Essentialism by Greg McEwen. The principle there is do less but better on purpose and mean it. And again, what I'm seeing, the best entrepreneurs are capable of building businesses that thrive on simplicity. Yes. Uh, they don't get overburdened by their own egos and make things complex. They are debt-free and they are cash flow positive. And I, th I think essentialism really encapsulates that beautifully. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Paul, who was 23 years old, thought he was invincible, immortal, how could you advise him to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage? Aside from investing in Amazon. Aside um, from investing in Amazon, yeah. <laughs> I've always tried to avoid having a linear career for the sake of a career. But one of the things that I would say to myself is just get a move on. You know, I think David Cassidy, the 60s teen idol, on his, um, on his deathbed, he said, you know, so much wasted time. I just have this sense that there is so much to do and we spend so much time talking, especially in our industry and what you and I do. You know, we're enablers of others to a certain extent. And one of the, the things that I'm, I'm sort of aware of now, looking back at my younger self, is, you know, did I do enough? Could I have moved further faster? Getting ready to get ready. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So final question then, what, what is it that you're struggling with? What, what are you wrestling with at the moment? I think staying open to short-termism, I think, is I think you, know, you can't help but project to when this is all over, this, this sort of this moment of lockdown. And actually, there's a lot of good to be had from the here and the now. And I think trying to stay open to this, the now and this, moment that's right in front of us. I think that it's really critical because otherwise you're sort of remorseful about what you didn't do when you could do something and frustrated that you can't do what you want to do or be as mobile as you want to be. But I, I really believe that this time in our history, there are certainly many silver linings to be had. And I just want to make sure that I, I don't miss any of that by wishing it away too quickly. Absolutely. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. This has been good for our business. 
And I have a philosophy which is never waste a good crisis. Every wonderful dark cloud comes with many, many glorious silver linings. And if you're not fully present, if you're not fully in the moment, then it's easy to miss it. And I've developed a a model by stealing lots of good ideas and amalgamating them, uh, which I call above the line, below the line. Above the line takes you into what we call the drama triangle. And the drama triangle is made up of a victim voice, a persecutor voice, and a rescuer voice. And that's all about attachment. And it's also about being stuck in the past or worrying about the future. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you uh, reach back into your history and you drag the emotion of a negative past event into the present and you suffer it all over again. And that's a life of regret. And it's also where psychological games occur. And so it's very easy to get stuck in that internal narrative. You don't even need someone else to go around that triangle and end mm-hmm. up in a fight with your spouse, for example. And you know she wasn't there. And so the way to avoid it is the uh, winner's triangle. The winner's triangle is about being fully present, fully authentic, and being vulnerable instead of being a victim, mm-hmm. being assertive instead of being persecuting, and being nurturing and empathic instead of rescuing. Rescuing, we define as helping without boundaries or permission. Tends to mean that you become a bottleneck because you micromanage. They think you know you try and fix things, and you don't let people fail. I think one of the best things that you can do as a manager is encourage people to fail, and never punish them for failing. Punish them for hiding their failures because that's damaging. But you never punish anyone for failing because if you do then you stifle risk-taking, then you stifle innovation, and you also stifle constructive conflict, all of which I see as being massive assets to any business. And Mm -hmm. you don't grow without that. A life without risk is a life without growth. And managers, uh, founders, their job is to hire the best people and surround themselves with people who are better than themselves. Don't let their egos get in the way. Mm -hmm. And The danger is that if you get sucked into that psychological game, either with yourself or with others, then you miss the best of what's available. When you're hiring, hire people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. This is the best opportunity for uh, founders, owners, CEOs, managers to get out there and recruit the top talent because a lot of them are feeling destabilized. Why, Why would you cut recruitment now? Now is the time to double down on recruiting. Now is the time to double down on your prospecting, on your marketing for the right things. You made the point earlier that you, know, you, you kind of wanted Kahoot not to have a marketing department. I challenge that because I have a view that anything that touches the customer is marketing. So what I do is marketing. Training is marketing. If you treat training like marketing, then all of a sudden it's about putting profit on the bottom line. It's about helping you to grow your business, improve the experience of the customer. It's not about taking your salespeople off the road for half a day here and there and putting them in a classroom. If you look at it through the lens of everything that we do that has any impact on the customer in any way, shape, or form is marketing. And then you also happen to tap into a much bigger budget than the training budget, which is, (laughs) I have to say, I, I approve of. Paul, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. How can people get hold of you? You could um, hit me up on LinkedIn. It's just Paul Alexandru. 
I believe I'm the only one. There might be another one floating around. Or head to modernequivalent.com. Paul Alexandri, thank you very much. Thanks, Marcus. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you know somebody who you feel would be a great guest, then please get in touch at mcauchi at sandler.com or get in touch with me through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.